Well, good morning, guys. I'm seeing a lot of new faces, and I wasn't here last week because I was at a wedding. So my name is Christian, in case you didn't know. I'm 25, and I'm married, and I like pizza. There you go. That's all you need to know about me. Uh, I'm going to read um, just a short passage before Mike uh, starts his message today. It's in Isaiah. It's chapter 1. It's verse 16 through 18, and I'll just read this over you guys. It says, Wash yourselves. Cleanse yourselves. Remove your evil deeds from my sight. Stop doing evil. Learn to do what is good. Pursue justice. Correct the oppressor. Defend the rights of the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come, let's settle this, says the Lord. Though your sins are scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are crimson red, they will be like wool. Christian, no wonder we get along so well. <laughs> we have so much in common. <laughs> Shh. I was going there too, Todd. I was going to be like, yeah, we both like pizza and we're both 25. Yeah, that was, that was a while back. Well, good morning again, everyone. Are we all awake? All right, sounds good. Uh, I'm, my name's Mike. Um, I'm one of the staff pastors here at the church, if you're unfamiliar with me. I, I just always want to not take it for granted that everyone in the room um, knows the people that are, that are standing up here, but it, it's my, um, my pleasure and it's an honor to share from the Word of God this morning. I think sometimes this can get taken for granted um, that we get to do this, that we get to gather as a church and that we have the opportunity um, to be together. God forbid that we ever become like the church in Laodicea. For those of you who know Revelation chapter 3, you know exactly what I'm talking about. The church of Laodicea is the church that we want to identify with the least. Because there's nothing positive said about them and about what they were doing ministry-wise in their time. In Revelation chapter 3 verse 15 we read this. This is Jesus speaking. And he says, I know your works that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. For you say I'm rich, I've become wealthy and need nothing, and you don't realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you may be rich, white clothes so that you may be dressed and your shameful nakedness not be exposed, and ointment to spread on your eyes so that you may see. As I read this text this week, uh, something struck me as I read it, and it, it was just this question, are we blind? Are we blinded by our comfort? Are we blinded by so many of the things that come easily to us in our culture and in our world because of the time that we live in? What's exciting about this passage, and I don't want to leave this part out as we begin our study this morning, is that there's hope infused into this. I think a lot of times you can get on, a, on almost an extreme bent on either side. You can be extra super negative or extra super positive, and we don't find a really healthy balance of correction and grace, of a call to holiness and mercy. And God is all of these things and calls us to find balance. So we must look at the entirety of the word to understand what's being said. And so I think that it's important to notice in this text, and I'll read the next section to you now, is even as Jesus speaks to this church and calls out the issues that exist there, they're not left without hope. They're not left in a hopeless situation where they feel like everything they're doing is wrong. They're given strong encouragement 
in the midst of the rebuke that they received from the Lord. And here's what he continues to say in Revelation 3.19 and verse 20 as well. He says, as many as I rebuke and discipline, so be zealous and repent. See, I, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. This is a picture of fellowship. The conviction, correction, and discipline of God are all proof of his love for us. When God convicts us, when he corrects us, when he disciplines us, he's doing it for our good. That's what it says in Hebrews chapter 12. He goes on in, in that chapter to talk about how if our fatherly parents knew how to discipline us, and he says, and, and they're, not, they're not God the Father, he says, how much more will our, our Father in heaven discipline us, he says, in a spiritual sense so that we might live eternally. God's correction is so important. His conviction is so important in our lives. And did you notice that the visual that Jesus gives us in this text of what's happened in Laodicea comes with something that needs to happen. There's a situation that's going on here that, that can almost be missed when we read it because we're familiar with the, the phrasing that's used here because it's said often in church, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Isn't it interesting that this is being said to a church? I think a lot of times we, we get that in our heads almost as in this is Jesus saying this to a non-believer. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Here in this situation in Revelation 3, he is saying this to a church. He says, I'm outside. Why don't you let me in? There's some weight to that. There's some conviction to that. If he is at the door knocking, then he has been pushed outside. Repentance is the door. Repentance is the door. If we're to let Jesus into the working and the ministry that happens in the church, and I pray that he's right here in the midst right now. I don't think that we're in the situation of Laodicea, but it scares me to look at the church. It scares me to look at the church and to see the complacency because I see it in myself. I see the draw to compromise myself. I see the priorities, not for people, but for me, for my own comfort, for my own pleasure. Oh, I'll do this so long as it works out well for me, but if I have to go out of my way to love somebody, that's asking a little bit too much. We all should feel this. And we all need to be aware of it because we live in a world that is preaching to us the majority of the week that we ought to be comfortable, that we ought to have what we want. That's why, after all, we were exploded into being. You see, you start removing God from the picture. You start removing his creative purpose in our lives, and people start to think that the world really does revolve around them. By the way, when I say people, we are people. Isn't it funny how we're like, yeah, those guys, they're so off. What about us? What about our own day-to-day -day theology that we live out? Is it actually orthodox? Does it actually look like Jesus? Or does it look like the Americanized churchianity that we should have no part of? Sometimes we think we're so much better because we, we read the scriptures verse by verse here in this church. And I don't think that's ever going to stop because I love contextualization. I think that's the best way to exegete the scriptures. But here's the problem. If we start to think that this is preaching to other Christians that is preaching to other believers, we are a part of the problem. 
And I hope to prove that to you this morning. I don't want anyone to walk out of here feeling rejected by God. I just don't want anyone to walk out of here this morning having not repented of their sin. If we leave this room and we haven't experienced confession and repentance for our brokenness, then we have failed the purpose of why we're here today. Because I tell you what, God literally blew up my week so that I would teach this. I am not comfortable this morning. I'm really not. Like, I like being well-prepared. I like being well-studied. He blew up my week so that I would land here. And I hate it when he does that. But it's exactly what we need. It's what I needed. I think you'll see that shortly. The beauty of this message to the church in Laodicea is that he says, if you open that door, I'll come in and we'll share a meal together as friends. That's what the New Living Translations uh, translates this passage as. We'll come, I'll come in and we'll share a meal like friends do. We will have fellowship. The fellowship of Jesus is so necessary for us, you guys. We need him in the midst of all the things that we're going through. We need him in the midst of what we're going through this very week. It's been very, very heavy for me. We've all watched as the news has played out that 19 elementary school kids were shot in their classroom. They were murdered in cold blood. Two of their teachers the same. We get caught up in the why and what happened, all these things. But can we just appreciate for a second? Can we stop and appreciate? And by appreciate, I mean recognize the pain of the families that they are waking up in houses right now and they're not hearing the voices of their kids. Parents, we have to feel this. We can't hide from it. Put yourself in their place and we need to mourn with families that are mourning. We need to grieve the loss of life and recognize that these, these families have holes in their hearts now that only God can fill. Only his compassion, only his mercy can fill. It was hard enough having this happen and, 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 and having it happen in our country But then to find out that a seventh grader in a local school on Wednesday night took his own life. A school that I taught at. A school that I still know more than half the staff in. And I spent my day on Thursday having conversations with teachers and with youth pastors. I feel like they're responsible. Like they could have done more. And if our response to these things that are going on in our world is to create more policy, we have a problem. I'm not saying that policy and that creating more safe space and and finding ways to reach kids, maybe a program that reaches them. I'm not saying that that doesn't have a point. Here's my point. If we don't recognize that the same sin that is affecting all of these lives and breaking all of these hearts is in us. That that same brokenness is something that we're wrestling against. We have a problem. Because as Christians, our first place that we ought to go is repentance. Repentance. 
When we see sin and brokenness in the world, we go to repentance, and we don't call for other people to repent. We must repent ourselves. And if you want proof, I'm going to offer you a text to consider this this morning. Turn with me to Daniel chapter 9. I believe the first step the church has to take is humility and repentance ourselves. If we want to see repentance in our world today, we have to show them authentically what it looks like. We have been apathetic to the broken. We have been selfish. We have been complacent and easy to satisfy with a Sunday morning worship and occasionally maybe something else if it's convenient that doesn't interfere with our all so precious schedule. I am preaching to myself I idolize myself week to week. I have to face these things myself and realize that I have given up so many opportunities to minister because I've chosen pleasure. I've chosen relaxing. I've chosen entertainment. I've chosen to pursue something that doesn't have eternal reward. And it breaks me to think about the times that I've chosen myself over others. And all throughout 1 John, as we study through 1 John, and we'll be back in 1 John again next week, But as we study through 1 John, what has he been calling the church to exemplify for the world to see? It's love. It's loving each other. In our text last week, he he says this. He goes, listen, no one has seen God, but when you love one another, they can see him. If we are going to love each other authentically, we have to be aware that our sin and our flesh will get in the way. And it's for that very reason that Jesus says, if any man will come after me, he must deny himself. It's step one. We must care less about what we desire, what we want, and we must love and appreciate and desire what God wants in this world. This is the reality that I have to press against every day, that I need to confess every day, is am I only loving when it's easy? Am I only loving when it's convenient, when it makes me feel good? Or do I love the way that Jesus loves, sacrificially, even in the face of abuse and persecution and torment, which he did not deserve? Do we love like Jesus? Or do we love like something that looks sort of like it to us, but to the world it really looks no different? Do we only love when it's easy? Do we only care if it fits in our schedule? Who in this building this morning is ready to do whatever it takes to do the will of God? Appreciate you, man. It's funny because they're like, we're in church. We shouldn't raise our hands. He's going to hold us to it. We must hold each other to it. We. We're a church family. I intend to hold you to it just as much as you should intend to hold me to it. We must love one another. We must must be willing to do whatever it takes to see the will of God done in this world because we are kingdom people living kingdom lifestyle in a world that needs to see that. They need to see the love of God. When we realize that we have failed at loving each other in God's way, repentance must be our instant response. And if we ever believe for one second while we're here on this earth that we're done repenting of sin... Our goose is good and cooked. Because it never ends. Not until he completes the work he began. It's not until the day of Christ Jesus. 
what we'll see in Daniel chapter 9 is we're going to watch the prophet open the door through repentance. And notice as we read this text that Daniel does this in a very important way, I'll say. He's not only going to do it on his own behalf, but on behalf of his people. And that's what shepherds are called to do. Willing to stand up and convict others, but also calling themselves into the light and saying, I have to be convicted by the same things. I have to be broken by these same things. We have to lead people entrusted to us through the process of realization, confession, and repentance. By example, it's truly what leading with love looks like. Let's look at the first three verses of Daniel chapter 9. As we begin this morning, here's the situation. Here's the context. It's the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, a Mede by birth, who was made king over the Chaldean kingdom. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the books according to the word of the Lord to the prophet Jeremiah that the number of years for the desolation of Jerusalem would be 70. So I turned my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and petitions with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. Just to understand at what point of his life he's in, we, we think a lot about Daniel the young man, I think. Whenever you mention Daniel, I think of Daniel and his, his buddy, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and how when they came into Babylon, they were these young guys who had been taken from their homeland from Israel and taken into exile in Babylon. Well, a lot of time has passed. And if we believe, and I think it's accurate to, to believe that Daniel was probably about 15 years old when he went into exile into Babylon, that would put him about 81 years old at this time. He's an older man. He's seen a lot. He's endured a lot. And he believes that the time is coming soon. That they might be able to go home again. Understand this. Ahasuerus was most likely a Persian royal title to set the situation around him. We suspect the same for Darius. It's, it's a good possibility that it's either a Guberu or Cyrus the Great. Um, we know that Ahasuerus... The Hazarus that's mentioned here is not the same Ahasuerus who's mentioned in the book of Esther. That's kind of your historical background. What fascinates me is what we find Daniel doing approximately 66 years into his time of exile in Babylon. Did you notice that in verse 2, he's reading the scriptures? He's reading the scriptures. He's reading the prophecies of Jeremiah. He's spending time in the word of God. It's a good way, good way to start. If we want to know how to address the situations that are going on in our world today, we should not be reading more headlines. We should be reading more of the scriptures. It's not that it's unimportant to know what's going on in our world. It's that it's more important that we know how God says we deal with it. It's more important. He's reading the same scriptures that we read and taking action based upon what he reads. And here's the practical action that he wants to take based on Jeremiah 25. Verses 11 through 12. I'll read that passage to you and it'll be on the screen. This whole land will become a desolate ruin, Jeremiah prophesies, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. When the 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation. This is the Lord's declaration. The land of the Chaldeans for their iniquity and I will make it a ruin forever. Daniel is reading this saying, that's coming soon. That's something that should be happening soon. Knowing and seeing these things shifting for him as the Babylonians are defeated by the Persians, Daniel's now looking towards home. He's looking back to Jerusalem as, as the scriptures tell us. He prayed three times a day facing Jerusalem, longing to go home again, longing to go back. 
Knowing how old Daniel is at this time gives us understanding as to why he reacts the way he does. It's almost time. And Daniel recognizes the season he's in and what's coming next by reading Jeremiah 25. He takes action. What's the first action he takes? Well, he starts by repenting. Look at verse 3. So I turned my attention to the Lord to seek him by prayer, petitions, fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. He gets down low. He gets humble. And he says, Lord, we're broken. Look at his prayer coming up here, you guys. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed. O Lord, the great inspiring God who keeps his gracious covenant with those who love him and keep his commands. Notice how he says this church, this is so important. We have sinned, done wrong, acted wickedly, rebelled and turned away from your commands and ordinances. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets who spoke in your name to our kings, leaders, ancestors and all the people of the land. Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but this day public shame belongs to us. The men of Judah, the residents of Jerusalem and all Israel, those who are near and those who are far in all the countries where you have banished them because of this, the disloyalty they have shown toward you. Lord, public shame belongs to us, our kings, our leaders and our ancestors, because we have sinned against you. Compassion and forgiveness belong to the Lord, our God. Though we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the Lord, our God, by following his instructions that he set before us through his servants, the prophets. Daniel becomes very aware by reading the scriptures of their situation. In their time, in their current cultural atmosphere, and the response is a repentance that's very special. Notice this, he draws near to God. James 4.8 tells us to draw near to God and reminds us that he will draw near to us. Continues in that passage in James 4.8 and says, Cleanse your hands, sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. When we come near to the Lord, it's humbly. It's humbly, it's low, it's looking to God. It's looking to Him to lead us and to guide us. And we have to recognize who we are in the midst of that. Daniel admits and owns the national failure of his people. We have sinned, we have not listened. Did you notice that? He owns the national failure of his people and his own sin. This is us. How much negative representation of Daniel do we have in the scriptures? You won't find any. Now, that doesn't mean he's perfect. It doesn't mean he's not a sinner. He just told us so. So why would I point that out? Because Daniel represents someone. Daniel represents in this situation and reminds us of what Jesus did for us, even though he was perfect, he still took on the sin of the world, did he not? He still had the heart to take on the sin of the world. He still saved us from our sin by being the atoning sacrifice for us. Don't get me wrong here, Daniel was a sinner. Clearly from the text, he understood himself to be such. But we don't have a roster of sin for Daniel the way that we have for Abraham, Jacob, even David. The list can go on. 
And the point is this. From verses 5 through 18, you won't find Daniel removing himself from the failure of his people. He will identify with them in failure. He'll identify himself with them. And I think that sometimes this strikes us a bigger like, whoa, Mike, you're easy. We're saved by Jesus. We've been, we've been cleansed. We're good. I don't think so. Oh, I think your salvation is secure in Jesus. Don't get me wrong. But if we never have to confess or repent of sin again after being saved by Christ, then why would Jesus tell us to? And why did we just read in 1 John, in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, that we should confess our sin and that when we do this, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why did Jesus give the example to his disciples that their feet need to be washed? And Peter's like, give me a bath. And Jesus says, no, you're clean, but you need to let me wash your feet. Because we live in a sinful world, and you know just as well as I do that we're still struggling with sin, aren't we? We're still battling it on a daily, moment by moment, even second by second basis. And we struggle with that tension, don't we? That spirit versus flesh that, that, that's inside of our own hearts. We know what this is like. And when we confess sin, we have a tendency to confess the sins of other people. Or if we don't do that, we confess sin in a manner meant to excuse ourselves. Isn't it crazy how often we seek to justify why we did something wrong? My wife will look at me and go, you really flipped out yesterday. and be like, I was under a lot of stress. So, that excuses sin? Think about how often we do that. You don't understand what I'm going through. Sin is sin. It's still wrong. And we are empowered by the Holy Spirit. I hate it when she says that to me. She's like, you have no excuse. I'm like, I know. Let me justify it for just two seconds. But God lovingly gave me my wife. You guys, we confess sin so often on behalf of other people. That's why I mentioned before that it's easy for us to point to other churches and say they're the problem. And I think when we read the letters to the churches, we need to look internally and say, are we the problem? If anyone could have done this, if anyone could have made excuses in this situation, I think Daniel could have. As a man who was upright and righteous in a foreign land, in exile, making a stand for the Lord, prioritizing God. If, I don't know about you guys, but I don't feel comfortable putting myself in the same little group over there with Daniel being like, yeah, we're so alike. Daniel and me, man, standing for all the things that matter. We never let people down. I'd jump into that lion's den. You know, if there was something about like me getting thrown to the lions, if I prayed, I'd just probably, you know, I'd do exactly what he did. I wouldn't fear the lions. Are you kidding? I don't know about you guys, but I'm not comfortable putting myself in the same shoes as Daniel. And if he could have gotten by without confessing sin, he could do it way before I could. He was only a youth at the time of the fall of Jerusalem. He had led an exemplary life in the wicked city of Babylon for 66 years. David could have pleaded his innocence before God and said, I've done it right. These crazy people, you need to help them. Right? Yet he took the part of his people and confessed his own sin with theirs, saying over and again, we, 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 and we. We are the problem. We have a sin issue. 
He associates with them by standing with them in failure of achieving holiness and relying upon the grace of God. And there's not one person in this room without Jesus that would be holy. And there's not one person in this room who's not pressing against it, trying not to be holy in their flesh. Every single one of us understands this. We just may not want to admit it. I had an, an, older, an older man long ago who was calling me out on my sin, look at me and say, I used to struggle with that, but I don't really struggle with sin anymore. I just love God too much. And I wanted to be like that lady in The Princess Bride. <laughs> Liar! That's not true! I don't believe it! I don't believe it! I honestly think there's delusion there. I just don't struggle with sin anymore. I just love God too much. Like, Really? I'll bet that's how the Pharisees felt. Yeah, I meant that. There's only one man that walked this earth in a sinless way, in a perfect way. His name was Jesus. Unlike Daniel, for whom we have no specifics for, yet we know was a sinner, Jesus was not. However, I think that Daniel's a a picture of Jesus in a really special way. Because have you ever thought, and I've mentioned this before, but, but some of us may not have heard this. Have you ever thought about almost exclusively how Jesus referred to himself during his incarnation? What's the title he used? Son of man. Almost exclusively. Why? He identified with us in humanity. He stood with mankind. He stood with human beings and with people. And he loved us all the way to the cross, even though we were the ones that put him there. Jesus was born humbly into the feeding trough of a farm animal. He worked as a carpenter with his hands. He was baptized by a sinful human, preached to a nation that rejected him on the whole and was murdered unjustly for being precisely who he said he was. And that whole time he called himself what? Son of man. He stood with us. He bore our shame and sin on the cross. He chose not to stand apart from us, but to stand in the gap for us. To repair the damage sin had done through death in our lives. And it ruined our relationship with God. And Jesus said, I can do something about it. He succeeded as Hebrews 4, 15 through 16 states, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. And while public shame is the, is the experience of the Israelites, as a punishment for their sin, Daniel recognizes in verse 9 of this text, compassion and forgiveness belong to the Lord. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying as well. Because of Jesus, recognizing what he has done, and remembering that compassion and forgiveness belong to the Lord, we ought to enter that throne room of grace boldly, but not cocky, not arrogant, not pridefully, because the only reason we enter that throne room is because of the shed blood of Jesus. Amen? And as we come forward to that place, we are seeking help. We are seeking mercy and grace to help us in time of need. 
And that's what the church must continue to do every single day. And by the church, I mean us. When we see the brokenness of our world, we are to come into the throne room of grace humbly and say, Lord, help me. Show me how to minister here. Because if I go out there without praying, without seeking the Lord, without being humble, and without being empowered by his spirit, I'm going to make a mess of this world even worse than it already is. Because I'm going to start by making a mess of my own life because I'm unrepentant. You guys, while public shame was what we deserved, Jesus stepped in and received public shame so that you and I could receive the compassion and forgiveness of God. Think about those two aspects. As Daniel points them out in this prayer, and he says, compassion and forgiveness belong to God. That's what Jesus has given to us, but we deserve public shame. We deserve what he took on the cross. They didn't crucify people on some back lot somewhere where no one would see it happen. They crucified criminals on the main roads leading into cities. Jesus was seen by all the people as they walked by. He was there exposed and beaten and bloody, dying on a cross. He himself, 1 Peter 2, 24 through 25 says, bore our sins in his body on the tree so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is gospel reality. And this is where we come to this place over and over again of recognizing that I could not do this for myself and that the brokenness of this world needs the shed blood of Jesus just as badly. We have sinned, done wrong, acted wickedly, rebelled, and turned away. It's amazing to me to see Daniel say that when the people in general have done that. But you've seen Daniel live a very different life. You've seen him live a very powerful life in exile. And yet he says, we. What's being reflected there is humility and honesty. It's humility and recognition that I'm broken too. And so many times, church, we look at what's going on in our world and we start pointing fingers. We start thinking that that's the problem, this is the problem. I'm not saying that things don't need to change. I'm saying the first thing that needs to change is us. This is an in-house issue. So often we would look at ourselves and say, well, I would never do that. I would never, I mean, are you kidding? That's such a heinous crime. It makes us, it makes us cry just thinking about it. Did we learn nothing from the Sermon on the Mount? When Jesus said, if you're angry in your heart with someone, you've murdered them. Why is there slandering? Why is there gossip? Why is there lies? If we don't think the church has problems, go ahead and flick on the news this last week and take a look at what's going on in the SBC. Go ahead and look around and see what's happening in churches. That will happen to us if we are not humble. 
That will happen to us if we are not aware of our brokenness, if we don't spend our lives together on our knees in humility, repenting. Don't think it can't happen to us. It can. But it doesn't have to. Because of Jesus. It doesn't have to. That doesn't have to be our story. Sometimes, and this will shock many of you, I'm at a loss for words. Most of you don't think that actually happens to me. I always have something to say. Kind of at a loss for words. I'm flabbergasted. I'm upset. It's in my soul. It's making me feel physically ill. Just the effect that sin's having on our world. No, none of this is new. Solomon was right. There's nothing new under the sun. None of this is new. But it's on our time. God put us here and he put us on the clock. He put us as his church in this generation, and I'll say it very specifically, in this community, and we're on the clock. What kind of a shift are we going to run? Are we going to play this above board? Are we going to be honest about who we really are? Or are we going to try and fake our way through it? There needs to be transparency. There needs to be honesty. There needs to be humility. There needs to be a recognition that we would not be here if it wasn't for Jesus. If we want to see change, it starts here. So many people talk about revival. Do we want to see revival? Sure. You ready to do what it takes? That's the question we have to ask ourselves. Do we actually want to see a revival? Because what it takes is repentance. It starts right here. If that's what we want, then I want to read Isaiah 53, 3-6 for you. Because this needs to be part of the DNA of our repentance. Speaking of Jesus, he was despised and rejected by men. A man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses and he carried our pains But we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion. Crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way. And the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. Notice, it's the same passage that I read to you before from 1 Peter 2. By his wounds you've been healed. Church, he's healed us. He saved us. Let us not walk in darkness. Let us turn away from evil and from sin. And let's take an inventory 
this morning. Before we fellowship, before we eat, before we go out into the community, let's do this authentically. Let's do it with hearts that recognize that we are saved by grace and grace alone. Let us be a ministry in a church that glorifies God, sets people's eyes on Him. He doesn't have to hide a thing. Worship team, could you come on up? Let's pray. Lord, there's a there's a weight. There's a weakness in me. Um, and I'm thankful, Lord, that for so many of us, as we've talked over the years, so many in this room who we've done ministry together for a long time, that we just recognize that it's it's true that you really use the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. Because so many people who are wiser than I am and who know more than I do didn't agree with the direction that you called us in. Lord, can we just be a people that doesn't pretend that that's because of ourselves, but is really honest with you about why we are where we are and that we are able to stand because you have given us the ability to do so. Lord, would the things that break your heart break ours? The things, God, that that you are grieved by in this world, would those things grieve us and not just the things we see in the news and not just the tragedies of, of people that are nearby us in our community right now. Lord, I pray that the sin in our own hearts and our own lives would grieve us, that we would be done with it, that we would hate those sins, that we would deny these things and that we would walk uprightly before you. We've read it over and again in this This book of 1 John, as we've studied through it over the last few months. Lord, that those who want to honor you, those who truly love you, obey you. Lord, that that obedience flows from a loving relationship. It doesn't create one. And God, I pray that we would recognize that in our hearts right now, we are being given opportunity individually in this room. As our eyes are closed, as our heads are bowed, we are given opportunity to hear your conviction, to sense your discipline, to feel you drawing us near. And God, that we would be so aware of the closets of sin that we've closed up away from you, that we would open the door of repentance. As a people, as a church, would you convict us, Lord? I ask that you forgive my sin. I'm part of the problem. Lord, I haven't always done what you've called me to do. I've thought things in my head. I've felt things in my heart that I know are sinful and wrong. And would you forgive me of that? Would you cleanse me of unrighteousness? Would you purge bitterness and hate from me? Lord, as the the psalmist writes, would you purge me with hyssop so that I can be clean? As we pray with our eyes closed, 
I want to give everyone here some language from Psalm 19 to be praying as we start to sing, as we start to praise the Lord. Can I just give you some language from the psalmist to use as you pray individually right now? Please just hear these words from Psalm 19, verses 12 through 14. Who perceives his unintentional sins? Cleanse me from my hidden faults. Moreover, keep your servant from willful sins. Do not let them rule me. Then I will be blameless and cleansed from blatant rebellion. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you. Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let those words settle and soak into your heart as we prepare to sing.